I'll be reading to you Habakkuk chapter 3. Um, that will be up on the screen if you'd like to follow. Um, if you're in the Blue Bibles, that's on page 940. And also today, um, if you'd like to follow along, it's in your booklet on pages uh, 4 and 5. And you'll find the sermon outline as well when Mike comes up. Um, so Habakkuk chapter 3. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet on Shiganoth, which we believe is a musical term. Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, Lord. Repeat them in our day. In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Teman, the Holy One from Mount Paran. His glory covered the heavens and his praise filled the earth. His splendor was like the sunrise. Rays flashed from his hand where his power was hidden. Plague went before him. Pestilence followed his steps. He stood and shook the earth. He looked and made the nations tremble. The ancient mountains crumbled and the age-old hills collapsed, but he marches on forever. I saw the tents of Cushion in distress, the dwellings of Midian in anguish. Were you angry with the rivers, Lord? Was your wrath against the streams? Did you rage against the sea when you rode your horses and your chariots to victory? You uncovered your bow, you called for many arrows, you split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. Torrents of water swept by, the deep roared and lift its waves on high. Sun and moon stood still in the heavens and the glint of your flying arrows at the lightning of your flashing spear. In wrath you strode through the earth and in anger you threshed the nations. You came out to deliver your people, to save your anointed one. You crushed the leaders of the land of the wickedness. You stripped him from head to foot. With his own spear, you pierced his head. When his warriors stormed out to scatter us, gloating as though about to devour the wretched who were in hiding, you trampled the sea with your horses, churned the great wa waters. I heard and my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled. Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nations invading us. Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Saviour. The Sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes me my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. Um, I've got to admit, today's passage is one of those passages that I find really hard to preach. I, this is, I think, my fourth time preaching it, and yet it's one of the passages that I love preaching more than any other. Why I find it hard is, is because what I want you to do today is to be thinking about the darkest times in your life, the hardest times in your life those times of despair that have brought you the most pain. And that's hard to do. But it's one of the joys because it's a passage that gives us a way to deal with those. And that's why I want us to be thinking about that today. So I want to ask God to help us to do that before we get right into it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we... 
we give you great thanks that we can be here today on a day uh, that is remembered uh, in Australia for fathers. And so, Father, we, we want to uh, come before you, our great Father, the only Father who never lets us down, and help us to understand your ways, help us to learn how we live by faith. Amen. Now, I think I left the remote up at the desk, so I'm just going to go and get that. So keep Habakkuk 3 open in front of you as we kick off. I despise you, God. How could you possibly do this to me? Actually, no, I hate you for what you've done to me. Forget you. You mean nothing to me. You do nothing for me. All I feel is left, left out and left down. Ah, that's it. As far as I'm concerned, God doesn't even exist anymore. I'm sick and tired of the pain and hurt and anguish that I feel. It hurts so much. I'm just going to live for the good times now. I'm going to numb the pain with the bottle and with the bed of a beautiful woman. These are ways we can, and countless others through history, have responded to pain, suffering and anguish and evil in the world that's all around us. Today, we're wrestling with loss. We're wrestling, as we get to the end of Habakkuk, with evil, with pain, with suffering, with the personal heartache we feel, with the sense of the pain that nations feel when they're being destroyed. All of this heartache we're confronted with. We're going to see that there is a far better way a kind of upside-down, strange way on the surface, but a better way to dealing with this pain than those examples and many others that people have. That is our goal today. How can we live in relationship with God when it's so clear time and time again we're confronted with heartache and pain and suffering? And the way we're going to do that today is we're going to see Habakkuk. We're going to see Habakkuk and how he responds. So it's good for us. Some of us might have been here uh, for the other week. So let me uh, give you a little bit of a recap as what's been happening with Habakkuk. Because the book of Habakkuk is a dialogue between Habakkuk, the prophet, and God himself. And so it starts off with, and Habakkuk cries out that anguish that we kind of heard before there, where he says to God, why God, why? Why is all this evil and suffering happening? Why are your people so wicked? Why are the Babylonians... Why is it all so horrible? He makes this complaint to God. God's response was nothing short of confusing, terrifying and bizarre for Habakkuk. God said... I am going to raise up the Babylonians. I know my people have been wicked, um, Habakkuk, and so I am going to raise up those Babylonians and they're going to come down and destroy the wickedness of my people. Habakkuk responds to God 
quite simply with one word, what? Are you kidding me? You're going to bring the Babylonians, a nation that aren't your people, who are far more wicked. They are just evil at the core in the way they destroy nations. We saw that other week. And you're going to bring them? That's your solution? I don't get this. I just, I don't understand God. What are you doing? They're worse than us. And so he says, I'm going to stand on the ramparts, on the city wall, and I'm going to wait for your answer because I can't handle this anymore. I want an answer. God speaks to Habakkuk and says two things that Jack helpfully brought out for us last week. First of all, God tells Habakkuk, I know they're wicked, Habakkuk. Don't be under any illusions that they're acting and, I, and I'm letting them get away with it. There is going to be punishment for all of those that reject me. There is actual justice coming to them. But in the meantime, here's the key for you, Habakkuk. It is, the righteous will live by their faith. And Habakkuk was told to chisel it out, write it down. The righteous live by faith. Trusting in God when it all seems messed up. That's what we saw last week. The question is, will he or won't he? What's he going to do? The Babylonians are still coming. There's a promise of vindication at some point and Habakkuk has to keep dealing with it all hearing God say, you have to trust in me. What's going to be his final response? Well, before we unpack it, let's get to how Habakkuk's feeling. Have a look. I must have put it up there, that's right. Have a look on verse 16. See, nothing has changed. I heard and my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled. A mighty army is marching and its march is invading his ears. His heart is racing at a million miles an hour because he knows this wicked nation is about to destroy and their God endorsed. He knows their war cries and their songs of battles and his lips are quivering like a baby who's just about to burst into tears because they're in so much distress. He is beyond terror. His very bones are decaying as he feels his inner core. Death is creeping forward. He is a mess of fear. He can no longer stand as he trembles with the reality of what is coming. In any of your distress, this is a picture of it here, isn't it? What kind of national distress could we relate this to? I wonder, to get a sense of it, we'd feel as if At Port Augusta, the Taliban and ISIS were marshalling their troops. 
and we knew that they had the armies and the power and there was no way that we could stop them and they're coming to Adelaide. That's the sense of how he is feeling. The situation has not changed from when God answered his first complaint. I am raising up the Babylonians. How can he possibly turn to God? What's he going to do? Well, let's have a look. See, what does Habakkuk do? I think we see in this, what is a prayer, which is quite interesting, isn't it? That's put to music. He does three things. And if I think if we can get these three things clear in our head, it sets us up for life. See, firstly, he remembers. He remembers. Have a look at verses uh, 2. Lord, I've heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, Lord. Repeat them in our day. In our time, make them known in wrath. Remember mercy. He, he thinks about God and he pleads with him. He asks God to renew his work. He realizes the awesomeness of God. I've heard of your fame. There's no one bigger or greater. I stand in awe of your deeds. That's what I want to recall, God. Renew your deeds now. He asks them, he asks God to renew what he's done previously. And in 3 to 15, Habakkuk brings to his mind, he doesn't just go, God's done good things in the past. Yeah, I know that, that's all good. He brings them into his mind. He thinks about them. He reflects on the God that he knows and what he has done. In 3 to 15, he recalls, we could spend hours on this and what it's alluding to in all its glory. In verses 3 to 15, he recalls God's mighty acts. That God turns up in history, in his mighty power. You see that in verses 3 to 7. And it's definitely an allusion to Exodus and, and 19 and 20 and Mount Sinai. And, and you know, there's Michael 1 there that we won't go into in details now. But he's recalling how God turns up. For his people, especially at that crucial moment at the Exodus where he delivers his people. He recalls God's great acts of deliverance and he describes them. Did you go back to verse 2? How does he describe them? In wrath, remember mercy. Where there is punishment and judgment, God has brought his mercy with it. It is extraordinary. The plagues in verse 5 went before him. Pestilence followed his steps. Mountains crumbled and God turned up at Mount Sinai. There's the reference to Joshua and the sun uh, uh, in verse um, 11. Uh, sorry, verse 12. The sun, the sun and moon stood still in the heavens at the glint of your flying arrows. In Joshua 10.13, where God done a miraculous things for his people. This picture of God's great deliverance, of the exodus coming through. When you get to verses 13 and 14, and you see how God brings deliverance and justice. 
You came out to deliver your people, to save your anointed one. You crushed the leader of the land of the wickedness. You stripped him from head to foot. Egypt is crushed. God's people are delivered. Their chosen people are rescued. Egypt are kind of portrayed as the nation of wickedness that God does deal with as he deals with Babylon. He's remembering what God has done. His mighty and powerful deeds. When you remember, you have affection towards those you like and you have pain and hurt and guilt for those that have done you wrong. This morning when the kids desperately have to wake me up, even though maybe I prefer sleeping than being woken up early on Father's Day, but that's okay. Um, the affection that they have in that they try so hard with their presence, that I get a coffee cup because, well, you may have noticed my obsession with coffee, that they, I get a coffee cup, I get a Port Power puzzle because Ethan loves Port Power and <laughs> he wants to do a puzzle with me. And, 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 and I get a, a little notepad because I, I constantly forget stuff and I need to write stuff down. That brings affection. But I can recall times when I was at school where supposed friends betrayed me deeply. And it causes heartache, even to this day. Habakkuk remembers because it shapes his relationship with God now. But it's more than that. You see, the second thing he does, as we saw there in that verse 16, that's the reality, and yet he does not let this fear change his perception of God. See, what he's actually doing is taking God's final words to heart. See, God spoke in chapter 2 and his words ended in verse 20. Let me read verse 20 to you. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. It's not time to fight, to get angry with God. It's time to be silent and reflect of the God in history who he knows. That God is God. He is in His temple. He is not threatened. He is not going to be taken down. God is the one who everyone needs to honour. And Habakkuk is getting that. But the fear is real. Chaos and bloodshed abounds as his nation is about to be smashed to pieces. Responding to God doesn't mean you don't feel overcome. Yet, like Habakkuk, verse 16 goes on to say, I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. It might not even be in his, his lifetime. And yet, the response is, God is the one in control. And while I am completely overwhelmed. I trust in God. There's a bigger picture 
at hand. You see, the third thing that he does, he looks back, he doesn't let fear affect his perception of God, and he rejoices in God, his Saviour. Look at 17 and 18. 18's the high point there on, on the screen. The fig tree does not bud. There are no grapes on the vines, though the olive copse fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen, no cattle in the stores. Verse 18, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God, my Saviour. They are starving and the Babylonians are coming. There is famine, fig trees, grapes, olives, fields to produce food, sheep, cattle. There's no food, basically. That's what that's saying. If that's the reality, it is a famine. They are starving. That, that's what he's saying there. If none of that is there, even if there was famine, if there's nothing to eat, we can't even exist properly. It just recalls to my mind as a kid all those images of Africa and there being famine, Ethiopia and those places where there's no food, where there's nothing, which is still the case today in so many parts of the world and those people with nothing are crying out, and yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Saviour. It's just mind-boggling. How do you do that? You see, he is, first of all, joyful, rejoicing in God. And what we need to be clear about is it does not say, yet I will be happy in the Lord, that I will be happy in God, my Saviour. Joy is different to happiness. It is far more significant, far more profound and deeper. You can be joyful as he is here and at the same time be fearful and overwhelmed and confused and not knowing what's going on. Joyful is not just needing to feel happy. Joy is contentment in God that gives you a sense of peace. Happiness and joy line up and into into eternity, our feelings of happiness and our joy will come together beautifully. But it's not always the case now. We were at a a garden centre on Friday and uh, you know how you often get to put in your garden those nice little quotes of things about life on on whatever, on wood panels and things like that. And the one that, that I noticed here says, happiness is not a destination, It is a way of life. That's wrong. Joy is not a destination. It is a way of life. Joy in God, your Saviour. You see, a search for happiness now will easily send you to abandon God because so often we're not happy because that's what's going on in life. It's easy to abandon God if we think it's all about happiness because that's not what God offers. He offers us a life of perfect relationship with Him into eternity and now we trust in Him as we long for it. 
You see, it's joy in God, contentment in God. Why? Because that last word of verse 18, he's Habakkuk's saviour. See, he doesn't just look back, he looks forward so he can rejoice in God. That's what he does. Can you see what he's doing? He thinks about everything God's done. He looks forward to the fact that one day God promises salvation, that there is eternity. And so he can rejoice in God because it's not the end point now. He does not understand. He doesn't have all the pieces together. He's still facing the Babylonians, but he knows that the God delivers, that he is sovereign, that he's in control of all things, and he knows that he is his saviour. He's the deliverer. That's what he keeps on reminding himself, and he promises that there will be deliverance. He is the perfect example of living by faith. Will he or won't he? Is the question I ask? He will. He will trust in God. You see, that idea of when you're in life, looking back at the God that you know, is so crucial. And so often, we let our own sinfulness, we let Satan's whispers, we let the world affect us, that we don't bother to do that. And then we get in our own heads and we think, God doesn't really love me because look at my situation now and the pain that I'm in and the heartache. I physically can't get up today. My head is so messed up, I can't think properly. I'm really unwell, I'm depressed, I am down, I can't deal with life. God doesn't love me. But if we go back and remember and remember, we see a God who delivers What happens when you and I look back? Before we get to Habakkuk, we get to the ultimate moment where wrath meets mercy at the cross of Jesus. Where Jesus, God himself, comes into the world and takes all of our wrath on himself so that he can be merciful to us in our pain and anguish and our difficulties it's not a cliche to say we remember Jesus like we taught the said to the kids it's at the heart of it because it's where we know for sure God loves us John 3:16 God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son it's because there he deals with our wrath and gives us mercy the thing that Habakkuk's remembering, the thing that we understand, when he cries out, I'll be joyful in God, my Saviour, he doesn't know it, but his Saviour, the Saviour of us all, is Jesus. Jesus is enough. The world thinks it's absurd and stupid. But we can hold on to the promise As John 3.36 says, if you believe in the Son, God's wrath is on Him and not you. 
we have that great eternal picture and promise that goes beyond any pain and suffering and difficulties that you could have. I did flick on the TV today, not intentionally, but one of those American preachers was on and as often is the case, his promise was that if you trust in God, all the blessings will come to you now. That you will have, if you're, you have those moments and God will give them to you quickly. Sometimes you've got to be patient, sometimes they'll come to you now in abundance. They're not coming to Habakkuk. He is facing the Babylonians. That is the picture that God promises. He doesn't necessarily promise great abundance and blessings now. In his wonderful mercy, sometimes he does. The fact that we're here in this place, the fact that we don't have people like the Taliban, like that silly example I gave at our door at this moment, the fact that we can meet together, the fact that we have homes to live in, that we have food, that verse 17 isn't the case. Abundant blessings that we forget how big those blessings are. But they're not promised to us as certain. What's promised to us as certain is that we can be joyful in God, our Saviour. It's an astounding, astounding finish. He says he can be joyful in God, his Saviour, because nothing can stop God being the Saviour. Because as we saw the first week, the Sovereign Lord is his strength. The Saviour is in control of all things. It's going to happen. He is going to do everything that He promises. Vindication comes. Evil, pain and suffering will be dealt with. Even if we don't understand how it's working out now, He will make it happen. Eternity is coming and we have Jesus. It's a great, great book. I don't think there's a week that goes by where I don't... I'm honestly saying I don't think about Habakkuk. I don't think about any other prophets as often as I think about him. There's a few reasons why and I'll get to that in a moment. But the takeaway from Habakkuk, as we come to the end of this series, is we move from despair to faith. I mentioned to you at the beginning that I want you to confront those dark moments in your life. And I want you to see the Habakkuk, that is God, is telling you, move from despair to trusting in me, to have contentment and joy in me, because you know where you're going. Remember, the sovereign God delivers. He is in control. Never forget who is in control of all things. Like Habakkuk did, the second thing we need to do is we need to wait patiently. We need to reject this very notion that we constantly, we, we get pulled back into. I, I don't know if you've realized it in your own life. We see it out there, but I don't know whether you actually make it into your own life. That we get pulled into this generation where we live in of the now. Everything is now. We're so flooded with advertising. You know how advertising is all about the now that you need? We get pulled into, we need this now. And we don't accept times of heartache, where there is physical pain, where we can't see beyond our 
mental well-being, the loss of a loved one, the weeks and months without a job, the abandonment of your colleagues as they throw you under the bus so they can succeed and you get taken down. We need it to be fixed now instead of waiting patiently for the Lord and helping and waiting to see how He is helping us to be content in Him in these hardest of hard times. You see, we wait patiently as we remember the sovereign God because as Habakkuk did, we live a life of joy. That is, we live by faith, trusting in Him. He is our shining example. We never forget what Habakkuk has done. This little book that maybe you knew of, maybe you didn't, now gets thrust into the heart of how we live. And I want to finish with three moments, reflections and examples of how that takes place. One from me, one from us, and then God's Word itself. The moment I decided I would never give up was at a funeral. A very close friend of mine who was uh, the same age as me but a bit further ahead in his Christian development who was leading our Bible studies, my first ever young adults Bible studies and I can't remember, it might have been 1 Peter, one where there was a promise of suffering for the Christians and he said, I remember it so clearly, I, I haven't really suffered. Any suffering I've got is a bit lame, really, compared to what's going out there in the world, but this is telling me I will. It was not, it was so soon later that his wife suffered the most horrific stillbirth. And I remember the moment at the funeral, at the grounds of this little coffin, and the shrill cry of the parents, just like have a cut, cut me deep. What blew me away and what made me never, never decide to give up was my friend, who wasn't a pastor yet, preached. He preached Habakkuk 3. And with tears rolling down his face, he read out time and time again, I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. Though the fig tree does not bud, the grapes on the vines, the olive crops fails and the fields produce no food. Though there are no sheep in the pen, no cattle in the stores, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Saviour. He said that at his darkest and deepest moment. How could I give up when I had such a friend express Habakkuk to me in his darkest moment. We all have legends around us, even in our church community, that have had those moments. We've had them here, haven't we? You know some of them. You can see how your brothers and sisters have responded the same way never to give up, but to have joy in God. Make today that day where you say, with them, no matter what befalls me, 
I will always have joy in my Saviour. Most of all, we never give up because God promises never, ever, ever to give up on his people. That great passage in Romans 8, the end of that passage is where I want to end. And I want you just to sit there and listen to how Paul describes the God who is always on his side, who is sovereign and nothing can defeat him, who he can trust in, who he can have faith in, that he writes his letter to the Romans about living by faith because he's given you his grace, because there is absolute assurance and confidence that you will be with him forever. These are the words we finish with. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died. More than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. We're just going to have a moment of quiet reflection and then we're just going to go straight into the song after that.